Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast. Bring you energy matters in an informal setting. In today's pod, we turn our attention to Europe's guarantee of origin market. For some, geos are the most efficient way of verifying renewable electricity output, while others say the system is open to abuse and should be reformed. Norway's new government caused concerns recently when it announced that it planned to exit the scheme. Helping me, Richard Sverson, to discuss the key issues in the guarantees of origin market is Adam White of Rex International. A warm welcome to you, Adam. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me. I think we should start really by discussing the, the, the bombshell dropped by the Norwegian government. Did that come as a surprise, Adam? I mean, yes and no. We, we knew that the Labour Party in Norway had this position for a relatively long time. And having won the election, even without a majority, as I understand it, they sought to, to start to implement their policy program. I think it does sound like a dramatic announcement, but we are staying calm about it. We're encouraging our members to stay calm about it. Nothing can change uh, overnight. Obviously, Norway is subject to, to European law and the, the Renewable Energy Directive and Article 19 of that directive, which sets out rules on, on what member states and other EEA countries need to do in terms of guarantees of origin. I don't think, and uh, I don't think anyone thinks that Norway is going to drop out of uh, respecting that kind of law. So things may start to change, but we don't think it's going to be a dramatic full exit of the guarantee of origin scheme as may have initially been heard in following the announcement. What are the reasons for, for the Labour Party taking this position? Is it quite critical of geos as a way of verifying renewable energy or has it listened more to industry in Norway, which has been which has always been very critical of the system and not to the utilities? I mean, my understanding is that it, it really comes from large Norwegian energy consumers, you know, most most kind of typically the, the aluminium smelters who use a lot of, of electricity in Norway, obviously, for their manufacturing. And I think their, their feeling is, well, you know, we produce a lot of hydro energy in Norway and, and that kind of by right belongs to us. And so we can claim to be using renewable energy, whether or not we're buying the guarantees of origin. Unfortunately, that's just not how the system works. The What we call the production mix in Norway, so what's actually produced in the country, is very renewable. But the consumption mix, which is what is consumed based on guarantees of origin, is pretty much the same as, as Germany. So the consumers in Norway, just like any other European consumer, if they want to say they're using renewable energy, have to be cancelling the guarantees of origin that go with that. I really think that is the easiest solution to this situation, that the all Norwegian consumers, they might not be happy that the guarantees of origin that come from their hydro production are exported in, in very large numbers into the European market for European consumers who want to claim that renewable energy. But you know, they have equal opportunity to buy those guarantees of origin. Arguably, they're of most value to Norwegian consumers because they are their, their local production and that has its own kind of uh, cachet and benefit. And they're, in fact, the least expensive often guarantees of origin on the market. So, you know, Norwegian consumers could get greatest value for, for relatively low cost. And they should be buying the guarantees of origin if they want to claim that renewable energy. But for them, I suppose it's an, an unnecessary extra cost. Well, unnecessary, it depends on uh, <laughs> on your viewpoint. It's, it's necessary according to European law, and they are subject to European law as an EEA country. So 
it is a necessary cost for them if they want to claim the renewable energy. What form could this exit from the geo market take then, uh, Adam? You don't seem to be convinced that there's going to be a, a total exit. What's your view of, of the way forward for, for the Norwegian government, given its legal constraints as well? If we take the, the starting position that they're not going to derogate from EU law on this because that would have wider implications for their status as an EEA country in, in general, then they are required under Article 19 to maintain a guarantee of origin system and issue guarantees of origin based on requests from uh, producers. So the next question is, like you say, what could they do to change their relationship with the wider European market on guarantees of origin? And a first step that's been that I've heard discussed could be that they might leave the AIB, the Association of Issuing Bodies, which is a voluntary organization for the national issuing bodies of guarantees of origin to come together and discuss the kind of latest developments, to share experiences, to learn from each other, and also to develop and maintain the European Energy Certificate Scheme rules, which is a, a quite detailed rule book on how AIB X geo schemes should be run. They could leave that, like any country could leave that. There are most European countries, uh, well, single market countries and EEA countries are members of the AIB. I think they benefit greatly from it, but not all. Poland, for example, isn't. The UK wasn't when it was still a member of the EU. So, you know, that could happen. And that could slow down the flow of geos from Norway into the European market because another major benefit of being an AIB member is that you can transfer your geos through a hub which greatly facilitates inter-country trade of geos. So so that's one thing they could do. I think that would be a, a retrograde step obviously because of the benefits of AIB membership like I've discussed. And and there are other things that, that Norway could do domestically whilst maintaining a geo scheme whilst being a member of the AIB to encourage domestic consumption of their geos. You know, they could offer tax breaks, for example, to consumers of uh, Norwegian European energy. Uh, Like I said, the the cost of a Norwegian hydrogeo is not particularly high, so it shouldn't take too much persuasion to explain to Norwegian consumers that you get great benefit from buying these geos more than any other European consumer, arguably, and, you know, we can support you in making sure that you're supporting the production of Norwegian renewable energy by consuming it yourselves. I think that's going to be quite some task persuading, you know, these big industrial produce- users of energy to, to buy geos. But um, certainly that's an option. What do you think the impact will be on, on the wider market then, Adam? I mean, do you expect then the flow of geos from Norway to the continent to come to a, to a halt or sort of, sort of trickle right down? I mean, what, what do you expect here? No, I don't, I don't expect it ever to come to a complete halt. It, it may start to slow down. I don't. I wouldn't want to be making too bold a prediction on on that either. Though I think, you know, as a whole, Norwegian geos are a big part of the market, and as I understand it from our members, they do provide li- kind of a, a base liquidity to the market as a whole. So they serve an important market function, and that liquidity is important in in geo markets. It is relatively limited. So if there was a significant reduction of uh, Nordic hydrogeos, that could that could have a kind of a knock-on effect on contracts in general, which which not depend but do benefit from the the liquidity that the hydrogeos from Norway provide to the market in general. So that could have a a negative effect that we would like to avoid with with doing 
the utmost we can to to maintain and increase liquidity in the market. So any reduction in that would be of concern. Having said that, as in terms of you know the different product groups for geos uh, in the market, the Nordic Hydro do tend to be the the longest segment of the market. So we know that the geo market has historically been oversupplied or long in general. When when Rex International looked into this in a bit more detail earlier this year, it's it's relatively clear. It was quite clear from the AIB statistics that it's really the the hydro seg- segment and the biomass segment that are the longest, and actually the wind and solar segments are quite short and and in most demand, therefore. And so it's not like the supply of hydro geos from Norway would have a you know a major effect. It, slowing it down wouldn't necessarily have a major effect in in pure supply and demand terms because the supply is uh, is already greater than the demand for it. And how about the attractiveness of Norway as a base for industry? I mean, you know, the tech companies or data centers, if there are changes to, to the rules for guarantees of origin, I mean, are, is Norway going to be attract those kind of companies? Well, I mean, any major corporation that wants to claim the use of renewable energy as any consumer needs to be able to prove that. And in Europe, that means cancelling GOs. And that's that's not only the law, that's also for voluntary disclosure schemes like CDP and RE100. So, you know, there's no way a big corporate who reports on their renewable energy consumption would voluntarily, I think, go to a country where they can't do that, where they'd have a, a large amount of their consumption that wouldn't really be verifiable by by groups like CDP. And so for me, that would be a retrograde step for Norway as well that they would limit the capacity to attract new manufacturers, new energy consumers who would require the kind of the presence of a geo scheme in order to be able to report their consumption. So in a sense, Norway is sort of shooting itself in the foot, really. Well, I definitely think that Norway would be the country most negatively affected by curtailing its geo scheme. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Adam, let's let's look more at the sort of current uh, market dynamics in the geo system. What are driving prices at the moment? We have seen that there are, you know, big price increases in the last few uh, weeks and, and couple of months, and there was a bit of a drop off, and then they're picking up again. And my understanding, you know, we're not a market player at Rex International, we represent market participants. My understanding is that this is really becoming a structural uh, increase in market activity. There's there's more and more demand from more and more consumers, uh, and that is that's what's driving the price. That there is many more transactions being made. There's, uh, like I said, more interest in in consuming renewable energy, and that's really where Rex International's focus is is on supporting that growing demand. And and that's at both ends of the market. There are some uh, well-established market participants who are becoming more and more sophisticated in the the types of renewable energy they're choosing, uh, the products they're choosing, and even driving the development of new projects, uh, new products at which we might talk about, you know, uh, temporally granular guarantees of origin and so on. But also there's massive opportunities still at the other end of the market where energy consumers might be new to buying renewable energy and wanting to to buy that in a simple and secure way and and we see them also coming in yeah in general we feel that the increasing interest and the price rises are structural and based on growing demand for renewables which is obviously a positive thing for everybody in the past i've heard you know people criticize the geo market for being 
you know, not very transparent, being illiquid, and maybe immature in many aspects, very volatile. Would you say that that's the case these days? Or is there is there quite a difference in today's geo market compared to a few years ago? I mean, I think it's becoming increasingly mature. I think we see it's a well-established market that's been around for a long time. It is becoming increasingly transparent. The Some of the national auctions have have helped with price transparency, for example. So we see auctions with published prices in Portugal, in France, Croatia, and Italy, and Luxembourg. So those are already giving a pretty good indication of prices. There's discussion of setting up um, exchanges for geos, which could complicate the market in some ways, but it can also help to provide a a clear price signal and increase liquidity, uh, which could have some positive benefits too. So, I mean, I definitely see the market maturing. And like I said, it, it, it has scope to mature at both ends with, with more complex products uh, available where consumers want them and also uh, you know, greater availability of geos, greater ease of buying geos uh, for consumers who want to enter the voluntary renewable energy market. Because at the end of the day, there's no requirement to buy renewable energy, obviously, in, in Europe at least. There are in some energy attribute certificate markets like in North America. But here it's really a voluntary market. So we do have to respond to the needs and the desires of consumers in order to ensure that we we keep lifting that demand up. Adam, you mentioned exchanges, plural. Are there plans for several exchanges for geos? And and is there enough liquidity in the market to justify a difference in or several marketplaces? No, that was probably, uh, I probably misspoke, uh, an exchange that, that I'm aware an of exchange. at the moment. Yeah. Are you seeing more interest towards wind and solar geos instead of hydro in terms of supporting new capacity? Is that something that's happening out there? Yeah, definitely. And this is a bit like I was talking about before, that where often we see consumers enter the market in the in the kind of the easiest way, which is probably buying unbundled generic geos or, or Nordic hydro geos, which are the most liquid, the most available, the least expensive end of the market. But then as they you know, participate in the market for, for a number of years or a bit of time, they look to refine their buying choices in much the same way as, as consumers of any product do. And they either look to buy geos from production that's more geographically local to them or particular product segments like, like you say, like solar or wind. And we do see more and more pressure in those areas. And I think this is this is often reflected in in price differences. There are quite large price ranges, even on publicly available prices between different geo products. And that really reflects supply and demand for those different product segments. And like I said, in our in the report we published earlier this year, we see most demand for wind and solar and, and that is where the supply demand is most in equilibrium. And therefore, prices have have started to rise in a structural way in those market segments. And it could be that products, as I've said, get more and more sophisticated as particularly at the the kind of the cutting edge of the geo market, the likes of uh, Google and Microsoft and Facebook, where they run big data centers and they have a big data capacity, are looking to buy geos from production that happened at the same time as their consumption was happening. Now, that's a relatively difficult thing to do, and it's obviously not for everybody. We'd, we would never have advocate it to be for everybody, but where um, consumers want that and where producers and issuing bodies can provide that information, then that can be a great way of, of adding value to geos as well. And another aspect of that kind of added granularity 
is the potential to add uh, CO2 values to each uh, guarantee of origin. So the CO2 value of the production of the megawatt hour that's represented in the guarantee of origin. Uh, obviously, for wind and solar, that's not so such an important piece of information, but maybe for hydro or bioenergy, particularly biogases, that could be a very valuable piece of information. And so adding granularity and, and sophistication in buying choices there can also be an interesting dynamic in the market. We're also going to be seeing the, the revised renewable energy directive and the discussion around that. What are the implications there for, for guarantees of origin, Adam? What's being discussed there? The Commission made its proposal, obviously, and it's gone to the Parliament and the Council now. The biggest change that the Commission proposed was requiring the issuance of guarantees of origin for all renewable energy generation. So in the current Red 2 that is still obviously in force, countries had the option not to issue guarantees of origin to producers that benefit from a public support scheme. And most clearly this happened in Germany, basically, where uh, those producers benefiting from the relatively generous German support for renewable energies were not able to request the issuance of a guarantee of origin. Now, if that proposal from the Commission uh, were maintained by the Council and Parliament and into the final law, that could change things relatively significantly in Germany and therefore for the market as a whole, because there is a significant chunk of renewable energy generation in Europe that goes uncertified, uh, mainly for regulatory, but also sometimes for market reasons. And that would obviously bring that supply in. And we do support this because we see it as a step towards certifying the generation of all energy and a step towards full disclosure. Now, full disclosure is where all energy generation or consumption is certified, and so no one is making a claim based on the residual mix, so what is left from the production mix after the certified mix is taken out. And there are different ways of doing full disclosure. It's not a kind of a, a one-size-fits-all, and the members of Rex International have supported uh, full consumption disclosure, which is really what they have in put in place in the Netherlands as, as kind of the best option. And that is where every megawatt hour of energy consumed needs to have a uh, an EAC or a guarantee of origin counseled for it um, in order to prove where that energy came from. And we think that's important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it levels the playing field because at the moment it's only consumers of renewable energy who need to cancel the certificate to prove that consumption. And also it really makes everyone conscious of the energy they're consuming. If you have to cancel a certificate against your consumption and you were assuming to yourself that you were consuming relatively clean energy without really paying too much attention to it, well, if you're confronted by a certificate that says, no, this was coal production from an old plant in you know somewhere quite a long way away, you might think, oh, actually, that's not what I want to be doing. I'm going to make a more conscious choice about where my energy is coming from. So is this linked to also some, some schemes and some measures we're seeing in recent months about 24-7 tracking of, of, of geos rather than or reporting it on a live basis, real-time basis, rather than an annual basis. Is this sort of linked to that, Adam? Not directly. So full disclosure is really about the certification of all energy generation, whether it's renewable or not. 24-7 tracking is the idea of placing more temporal granularity on each certificate. So at the moment, a, you know, when a producer requests a geo be issued for their generation, the kind of the timestamp on that geo can be up to a month, for example. It could just be a geo produced from solar 
in July 2020, which doesn't give the consumer much granularity about exactly when that energy was produced. Some consumers, as I mentioned, particularly those with uh, large data capacity, you know, the internet companies, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, and so on, have said they want more temporal granularity and matching on their consumption. So they want to say, well, we we consumed, this data center consumed five megawatt hours from one o'clock to two o'clock on July 31st, 2020. We want to buy five megawatt hours of geos that were produced at the same time and often in a relatively local proximity to that consumption. And the reason they're doing that, as I understand it, is there's a number of reasons, one of which is they want to as closely match the certificates to the physical reality on the grid at the time. They feel that that gives them the most reliable form of, of renewable energy consumption. It's the most likely that what is coming out of their plug is uh, closely related to what their certificates tell them they're buying. Now, you you can never make that match 100%. The reason we have a certificate market is because you cannot track electrons or gas through a grid or a pipeline from production point to consumption point. That's why you have to have a certificate market. But like I said, some of the more sophisticated consumers are making these choices, which are perfectly valid for them in an effort to make the, the kind of the physical reality match the certificates they're buying as closely as possible. And, you know, we don't block that at all. We are engaged in two major initiatives, the Energy Tag Initiative and the Euroelectric 24-7 initiative to ensure that these markets can work and they can be integrated within existing EAC schemes in Europe and and elsewhere as well. And, you know, that can, as I said, provide something that the the most sophisticated consumers want. Do you see this trend do you see it will continue? I mean, do you see there's a growing demand for this kind of temporal granularity, Adam? There's definitely relatively strong interest. I would say for my kind of best guess, it will never dominate the market, but it will always, it could be an important segment of the market. Picking up on something in your previous question as well, it's important to remember that 24-7 matching doesn't necessarily mean real-time matching. So you can still do And it will be the case that we will be doing retrospective matching of temporally granular certificates. So you might get, you know, even if it's to the end of the day or the end of a week or the end of the month, look back at your consumption for every hour in that period and then match it by buying certificates for production at the same time. Real time matching, kind of almost instantaneous matching of consumption with production through certificates. No one's sure that that's even really possible, I would say, and that's definitely a very long way off. So that it's still a kind of a retrospective product and effect in the market. Finally, Adam, we started off by talking about a potential Norway exit from the geosystem, but also I'd like to turn to the UK that's exited the EU What can you say about the acceptance of EU geos in the UK? What's the outlook here? Yeah, so this all stems from part of the Red 2, which says that EU member states can only trade geos with third countries, which, of course, the the UK is now. It says mutual recognition of the guarantee of origin schemes between the EU EA countries and those third countries. And that affected most, most immediately Switzerland and the UK. So in Switzerland's case, they had a, or they do have 
a very sophisticated, well-functioning geo scheme that's they're a member of the AIB, for example, and they were fully integrated into the European market and now no longer are because they don't have explicit mutual recognition of their guarantees of origin. And the same became true of the UK uh, when Brexit was finalised. And what is challenging for those countries is that it's not clear how mutual recognition can be achieved. So it's not defined in law, and the kind of informal indications we have from the European Commission are that uh, it has to be based on quite well-developed goods and services trades agreements, basically. So as you know, Switzerland had a number, like many bilateral agreements on different product and services areas with the EU. They have negotiated an inter-institutional framework agreement, which is like a an overarching agreement to bring all of those into one deal that was ratified on the EU side, but actually was never ratified on the Swiss side. And the Swiss government have put that on ice effectively. Um, and so the commission have said, well, we will only discuss mutual recognition of guarantees of origin with Switzerland if and when that uh, inter-institutional framework agreement is ratified by Switzerland. And so that gives an indication of the situation for the UK, which is where we started. And the Brexit agreement, as you know, is is a very thin agreement. And at the moment, the UK, like Switzerland, in fact, have said that but even if we can't export our geos, or in the UK's case, Rigos, to the EU market, we will continue to accept that EU geos can be imported to the UK and Switzerland. And Switzerland have decided to do that indefinitely. The UK government has said that it will continue to seek mutual recognition. What is uncertain is how long the UK will maintain that position, basically. And so there is uncertainty in the market there. We would encourage the UK to simply maintain that. I mean, the UK is a net importer of, of geos to the tune of tens of terawatt hours. And so if, for political reasons, the UK government decided to end that net import, it would have a major effect, mostly on UK consumers, blocking them from being able to choose the renewable energy of their choice. And it would have some effect on the European market too by removing a large demand centre. Something that we'll have to keep a very close eye on, as well as developments here in Norway. So, Adam, thanks very much for joining the Montel Weekly Podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Richard. It's been enjoyable. So, listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions, questions, or, you know, let us know if you, if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.